This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. Well, if you're stuck in traffic, kick those shoes off and relax. You've got to stay tuned for tonight's program. We've got three very special guests coming on to the show tonight, starting with Florida State Representative David Richardson, he is running for the Democratic nomination in Florida's 27th Congressional District, and he is joining us live in the studio at the top of the hour. Then we're going to re-air for a couple of minutes a very special interview we did with Eileen Higgins. She is running in tomorrow's special election in Miami-Dade County, District 5. She's running for the commission. So if you live in Brickell, if you live in Shenandoah, if you live in parts of Miami Beach, if you live in Little Havana, there is an election tomorrow, is an election day, and you've got to go out there and vote tomorrow. And I got to tell you, we don't endorse a lot of candidates on the Only in Miami show, but we have endorsed Eileen Higgins for District 5 Miami-Dade Commission seat, and the election, the special election, is being held tomorrow. Tomorrow's your last chance to vote. If you're registered to vote in Miami's District 5, Go out and do so tomorrow. Then at the end of the program tonight, we have Ladra coming in. Elaine Del Valle is the Emmy-winning author of politicalcortarito.com, and she will be joining us at the end of the program to talk Miami politics. I think nobody lives it more than she does, and I can't wait to have uh, Elaine back on the program. It has been too long. But this is the part of the program where I get to speak with you, the audience, directly for a few minutes about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond. And tonight, I would like to speak about the problems that we've had in the city of Miami with a racist commissioner. It's unfortunate, but I bring you the true and factual news that we have a racist commissioner in our third district. Uh, and I'm talking about Joe Carroyo. His brother, Frank Carroyo, served in that district for eight years very honorably. And I'm sure that voters thought they were getting more of the same. And it is unfortunate, but they did not. A few weeks ago, Mr. Carroyo interrupted a public meeting to hurl a racial slur at the chairman of that meeting, another city commissioner. <clears throat> it's very unfortunate that he would even think something like that could be funny. But when the chairman told him no... He didn't stop. That kind of breach of decorum on the dais in the city of Miami is not acceptable. City of Miami commissioners earn over $100,000 a year to do their jobs, which are considered part-time. And Commissioner Carroyo has been elected the mayor of Miami in the past. He has spent over eight years on the commission in the past. And a little bit of homework explained why he believes this is acceptable hate behavior. 
Mr. Carroyo became the youngest police officer in the state of Florida when he was 18 years old and was forced to resign when he placed a KKK flyer into an African-American officer's locker. Then he proceeded to campaign for George Wallace, the segregationist candidate in 1976. Mr. Carroyo's history at the city of Miami is laced with these kind of racist outbursts. He hurled racial slurs at the city of Miami's former manager in 1984 and another commissioner. Mr. Carroyo quite simply has a history of racism that cannot be denied, and he cannot explain away his most recent racial slurs on the dais of the city of Miami. This wasn't at a cocktail party where it's still not acceptable, but it's not his official job. If he has those views and wants to keep them to himself or wants to tell his friends, that's one thing. But as an official representative of the city of Miami, as one of the top six elected officials, it is unacceptable, and if he can't hold on to his personal feelings during a public meeting, and if he is insulting the chairs of public meetings with racial, racial slurs and then proceeding to do so even when told to stop, he should step down right now and let the city of Miami voters choose someone else. The city of Miami deserves better. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Florida State Representative David Richardson. He is a Democratic candidate for the nomination in the 27th Congressional District, covering most of Miami's east side. David, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you for inviting me. It's glad to be back. 
That's right. So, uh, David, I wanted to ask you your, your first impression about the debates that were held last week. This is the first time that all the candidates have gathered in one room, and it happened on Saturday morning at the University of Miami. What, what was your opinion of what transpired in the room? Because a lot of critics have said, well, geez, you know, they didn't ask all the tough questions. So the Saturday debate was the second one where everyone did uh, gather. But as you know, on Tuesday, there was a debate where Donna Shalala didn't show up. So that would um, be the Miami-Dade Democratic Party's debate, which she skipped on Tuesday night. And then, uh, you know, a number of people, including myself, called her out and, and publicly shamed her for not showing up. And she did show up for the Saturday morning. And, yeah, I, I heard some of the... Uh, the reporting and some of the pundits uh, talking about what we didn't ask and what we didn't ask and what we didn't ask. So, um, you know, I, I would tell you that um, I felt pretty good about it when, when I left. I, I walked into the debate with, with one primary goal, and I feel like I accomplished my goal. And that is? My goal was to get her to commit to three more debates, and I accomplished my goal. So for me, I felt like it was a success. Well, you know what? You're going to have three opportunities to duke it out with Donna Shalala and with the other uh, contestants. There's a total of five people running in the race, um, but I would say there's really only three, you know, a few serious candidates. I mean, there's a, a, there was, what, eight, nine, ten people running at one point? Yeah, there were eight and then seven and then eight, and now we're, we're down to five. I don't know if you saw the uh, Associated Press a couple of weeks ago where – um, they basically said this looks like it's going to be a showdown between State Representative David Richardson and, and Donna Shalala. Right. I mean, that that is what it's starting to look like here. Um, some of the candidates are complaining about pitchforks. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means. I, you know, if somebody steps on a pitchfork, I guess it's a problem in their political career. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's been a very interesting race. However, you've got a surprise, right? I mean, there's something happening in this race and dare i say uh you may be able to tell our listening audience a little bit about it well tonight. we're we're, we're going to be making a, a campaign announcement tomorrow so uh everyone's going to have to wait and and for until tomorrow but we're going to be making a very important announcement but uh, but i think it's fair to say that um for for anyone who thinks that i'm uh, wearing kid gloves uh stay tuned because the gloves are coming off well, you know, in your career as a state representative, you've done a lot of investigations. So am I getting warmer here? Well, um, I would say stay tuned for tomorrow. I, You know, it's interesting. You must mention my work as a state representative. And, and that's what was kind of most surprising about some of the reporting on the debate on, on Saturday is anyone who's followed my work in Tallahassee knows that nothing I do happens by accident. You know, I'm I'm very strategic. I I think about things in a very strategic way. So even if you look at the debate, uh, I did take on Donna Shalala on Saturday morning on two major issues and, and called her out in a very significant way. And if anybody was watching that carefully, they would have observed that I called her out only after I got the commitment for the three more debates. So, again, that was my goal. I got that accomplished, and then I started calling her out. And I got in, I got in a couple of really good points. Uh, you know, first of all, she's given uh, a ton of money to Republicans in Tallahassee. So, you know, that's, she's going to have to talk about that. She's going to have to explain it. Well, I mean, Donna Shalala donated money to her opponent in this race, to your opponent, Bruno Barrero, 
who was uh, the godfather of the Marlins Park. I mean, there were nine county commissioners. It took three city commissioners. He's not the only one, but Bruno Barrero, it was his county commission district that installed the Marlins Park debacle and Donna donated to him. Um, tell me a little bit more about the state candidates that she donated to, because, I mean, those people actually have a lot more impact on what happens in people's lives than they realize. And, and it's very localized because it's the state. Yeah, a- absolutely. So so the six years that I was up there fighting for core democratic values and I'm standing and doing uh, vociferous debates on the floor of the House. Now, every time I think about all those debates, I think, you know, I'm I'm debating with a Republican member and she was standing right behind them and giving them campaign contributions. I, I think a couple of the more notable ones is uh, the the state former state senator, former representative uh, Frank Artiles, who resigned from the legislature in disgrace. And she contributed to his reelection campaign. You know, he's the same legislator that wrote that hateful uh, bathroom bill that attacked the LGBT community that affects me and, and, and my friends. So I take that very personal. Well, you know, what's ironic about that is that he's actually spending her money today, Frank Artiles, to, 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 to poll the election to see if he's going to run again. And I, I have that from a very, very good source, a former Republican state legislator told me this. And then I, I went out and I did a little bit of research, and he's actually been talking about using Donna Shalala's money uh, on Univision. He said that it was all a political hit job and that his uh, fundraising trips to the Kentucky Derby with the Hooters girls were all legitimate. <laughs> It's 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 incredible. It's incredible. Another one of the notable contributions went to David Rivera when he was a state legislator. Another um, another name that we we've heard a lot about and had some uh, some ethical challenges. Oh, you mean the Republican candidate who ran a fake Democratic candidate in a primary for Congress? That that would be the one. And, and Donna Shalala donated to him so he could exactly, do that. Exactly. So, you know, Grant, I, w- I, was, I was thinking about this. The, the entire time I was up there, we can't find where she gave one political contribution to a Democratic state legislator. I certainly got no. But we can't find one example. But she gave tens of thousands of dollars to Republicans. So I was trying to figure out what would be her possible motive for doing that. And I've come up with two possible things. Number one, she agrees with their policies, in which case she should just join the Republican Party. Number two, maybe she felt like that because she was at the University of Miami, she had to make those contributions to get all the appropriations that were coming to the university. Even though she had, um, I I would say, the best lobbyist money can buy for the university, some top lobbyists. But maybe she felt like she had to, to, to write those personal checks to guarantee all those appropriations that were coming to the university. And if that was the case, then I would say that she's uh, she must be on board for a pay-to-play politics. Because that's what that is. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does look a little bit odd. And, of course, if that's her donation, I mean, that's, you know, the university pays her salary. And they still do to this day. You know? That's right. I mean, she's she's still a professor at the university. Um, although they're not the only ones paying her salary. Uh, Donna Shalala was a board member at Lennar and then left because of some unspecified conflict of interest. And I think it's interesting that she rejoined uh, not too long ago. I mean, people don't realize that that she's actually not a professor, but 
a very well compensated board member on some very large public companies. Yeah, she's she has really sold out to the Democratic Party, to the corporations. And, you know, we're going to be talking about those things. You know, it's interesting when the when the housing crisis occurred in 2008, when she was on the board of, uh, Lennar. of Lennar, you know, they also have a subsidiary that's a lending institution, a, a mortgage company. So uh, and and we certainly know the stories about um, the predatory lending, which led to the pricing increases, which caused the, the collapse. And, and she was on the board when that happened. It's interesting that that uh, at the time of that happened, one of the, the largest unions, the, the Laborers International, protested because they were one of the unions for Lennar. They protested against Lennar and and called, and I quote, uh, the company executive, pigs at the trough. Wow. Well, I mean, and all of that happened at the same time that she was overseeing a trustee at UM who was overseeing her job. <laughs> it's it's really hard. Cr- you can't make this yeah, stuff you can't, up. You can't make it up. You can't make it up. And, and, and then we can talk about when she left Health and Human Services as a secretary and went through that revolving door and ended up at United Health, a large for-profit healthcare company, uh, where she raked in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, you know, I actually wanted to backtrack to Donna Shalala's time at, at Health and Human Resources because, you know, I have a copy of Bill Clinton's biography, that two-volume, you know, donkey choker thing that. You know, before everybody knew all this other crazy stuff was going on, everybody ran out and bought the the biography, and of course I did. And somebody told me that uh, Donna Shalala was involved in SCHIP, the the Children's Healthcare Program, which I always remember as a Hillary Clinton program. And that's because Hillary Clinton bravely stuck her neck out for universal healthcare when it was unpopular. And the the consolation prize and all that was the Children's Healthcare Bill. I never associated Donna Shalala with that one bit. Um, and somebody said, you can look it up in Bill's biography. So I looked up Donna Shalala in Bill's biography. And the only thing I found was that she was in charge of implementing all of the work requirements and welfare, which today Republicans are trying to use to get a lot of the most needy people in America off of welfare when they actually need it. And uh, many of them are already working. So what's your position on the current Republican goal of getting rid of as many people on welfare as possible that are on it today by implementing stringent work requirements, because that's something that Donna Shalala has supported in the past. And yeah, we, we, we've seen these, uh, these battles in Tallahassee, especially the last couple of years where they've, they've tried to make all sorts of the, uh, the social programs that are available for the needy may it more difficult for people to qualify. Um, and you know, it's, it's shameful. I mean, it, you know, it's just like one of those things. I think people don't realize that, you know, there are two people in this race with extensive political histories, and one of them is basically a Republican light. No. Well, I think um, I think you've got something there, and I, I agree. You know, the, the voters are going to have a very clear choice in this election. They're going to be able to send a progressive Democrat with a solid record to Washington, D.C., or— they are going to send a corporate Democrat who has sold out. 
Well, David, please tell our audience where they can take this conversation onto the internet after the program, your Twitter account, your website. Where can they find out more about your campaign? Thank you so much. It's uh, Twitter is uh, David, D-A-V-I-D, the number four, and Florida. And, of course, my website is www.davidforflorida.com, David, F-O-R, Florida.com, davidforflorida.com. And if you have a couple of minutes, you stick around after the break. We'll talk for a few more, right? That's great. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Mama always said we were royalty. She even said it's staring in the face of poverty. Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind. Believe she put it in me. Because I live on my dreams. I gave my fantasies wings. One day I'm going to be king. I'm going to make that woman so proud of her son. I know you heard about change. It's going to come. One question. Will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air like a champion. Because I demand the win. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back live in studio with David Richardson. He is a state representative, and he is currently campaigning for the Democratic nomination in Florida's 27th Congressional District, covering Miami's east side, including Coconut Grove, Pinecrest, uh, Palmetto Bay, South Miami, and much of the city of Miami. David, thank you so much for joining us in the studio live today. My pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the platforms on your campaign and what's most important to the voters that you're speaking with out there right now. What do you think the, the top issues are that you've been hearing about in the last few weeks? So health care is incredibly important. And, and as many people know that uh, on day one of my, uh, my can, campaign announcement last uh, summer in July, uh, I uh, proposed a Medicare for All uh, universal health care, single payer system. And, you know, not only uh, have I spoken about it, I've demonstrated that by filing a bill in the Florida legislature last year, which took quite a bit of time to to do. So th- that 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 is very important. And voters are very interested in talking about Trump and the damage he's doing to to our country. Uh, that gets a lot of response. Well, you know, both of those are issues that that have a component in Washington, D.C. Like you said, there's the state component, which is a whole other issue. But let's talk about the D.C. component. Uh, what would you be interested in doing regarding health care if voters send you to Washington, D.C. this November? So I think that we absolutely need a Medicare for All a universal healthcare system in this this country. I know a lot of people I talk to think it's a monumental task. You know, they they don't know how we will accomplish it, how how we could ever get there. But you know, I, I say all these industrialized countries around the world have have done this and they've done it successfully. So when people say it's not possible, I know that's not true. Well, I mean, I I've read studies that say that Medicare's expense ratio is about three percent, and private healthcare, Obamacare only recently capped it at 20 percent 
And that expense ratio, that's actually the amount of money they don't spend on health care. So isn't that a big part of the equation? Yeah, and there, there are so many things that we're, the government is spending uh, money for now on health care that can be reprogrammed. You know, you just look, for example, as you mentioned, we get a lot, we get a lot of uh, medical dollars from the federal government in Tallahassee. In fact, it's the biggest piece of our state budget is the money that we're, we're getting from, from Washington, D.C. And, you know, we get money for the low-income pool. All of, the, all of those things uh, can, can be rerouted. And, and put into uh, a universal health care system. So let's talk about the other issue that you brought up. I mean, I'm going to leave this up to you because there's, you know, th- there's a lot you can talk about in foreign policy, and I don't think we've had this chat before. What's the number one thing that you think Congress needs to do right now about America's foreign policy? Wow, um, related the, the, to Trump, because yeah. there's a lot that could be done. So, so I'm gonna. This is really broad, but. The, the truth is that the way he has positioned our country and the way he speaks to other countries, he has denigrated. He is hurting our position in the world because we're, we're not the, the world leader that we're expected to be because of his actions and the way that he is presenting the country and the way he denigrates other world leaders. So that's the, that's the number one thing that he has to do, uh, although I just don't think he's capable of doing because it's not within his being uh, to, to correct that because he's so arrogant. Uh, but that that is really, you know, you, you see him and you see how different he is from uh, a world leader like Obama who extends the hand and tries to have the conversation with everybody in a respectful way, even when you disagree with them, uh, and not be dismissive. Well, I mean, here's another example. Congress already voted to implement very strong sanctions against Russia for their attack on the 2016 uh, campaign. Are you happy with the way that the Trump administration has implemented those sanctions? No, not at all. And I think that we have to wait uh, because I think there's going to be a lot more coming out. I mean, each day we hear another bit of news about the relationship that the Trump campaign had with the Russians and, you know, and, and with the Saudis and, and with the Emiratis right. and with the Qataris and Lord knows who else. And I think a lot of what he's doing are diversion tactics so that we can get get the attention off of uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C. with the investigation. But I do believe it's, it's going to be ongoing, and I do believe that we will get to the truth. Well, another issue that came up this past week is that Donald Trump decided to make China great again, which was a little bit unexpected, um, to say the least. There's a, a large uh, cell phone manufacturer named ZTE. A lot of people in Miami carry these cell phones. They're very inexpensive. They're unlocked phones. And it turns out that ZTE was putting spyware into their phones and allowing for mass surveillance. Uh, the United States government sanctioned them and said, you can't use American uh, uh, microchips anymore. And Donald Trump said, well, I think we can lift this. A couple days after uh, you know, one of his family businesses got a very, very hefty investment from a Chinese government-backed fund. I mean, what do you think Congress needs to do about this? Because at the end of the day, I think it's up to them to permit or not permit this kind of activity. Sure. And, and you know, I have a background in forensic auditing. And so I one thing I learned a long time ago is you always follow the money. Always follow the money. And that'll tell you the answers that you need to know. 
Well, David, I appreciate you coming on to the program live tonight. Can you give our audience your Twitter handle and your website one more time so they can take this conversation onto the internet after the program? Sure. Thank you, Grant, and thank you for having me on. David for Florida, David for F-O-R, Florida.com. And my Twitter is David, the number four, Florida, David, the number four, Florida. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we are back in studio with Eileen Higgins. She is running for Miami-Dade County Commission District 5. There is a special election for that seat coming up on May 22nd. That's right, this May 22nd. Early voting has already begun. It is not too late to get your absentee ballot. If you live in Miami, if you live in Miami Beach, Brickell, downtown Miami, Spring Hill, Shenandoah, uh, all of those neighborhoods, get out and vote right away. Eileen, thank you so much for joining me Thanks, on the program. Thanks, Grant. Glad to be here. It is my pleasure to have you on the show, and I've wanted to have you on for a while, too, but you have that Monday night gig. I know. I always teach on Monday nights, and your show is always on Monday nights. <laughs> I know. It's, <laughs> it's a popular night. I can't ditch my students. They're, they're, it's, first of all, they're relying on me, and second of all, they're kind of cool because they're all small business owners and entrepreneurs. So that's how I spend my, money, my Monday nights. <laughs> so, so tell our audience a little bit about the class that you teach for these entrepreneurs and, and how you think that experience informs what you're trying to do at the commission. Because, you know, uh, there are people that are just career politicians out there running for office, but you actually have a lot of business experience. I do. Um, so the, the course is called BizHack, and um, Dan Gresh is kind of the founder of the course, and Dan and I have been uh, co-collaborating, I guess, for two and a half years. And um, the, the reasoning behind the class is we just began to realize that there were lots of small businesses out there. Small business owners and entrepreneurs tend to have a good product idea, sometimes a good service idea. But they often lack the ability to connect that idea with customers, right? And customers half the business. And so that was a missing link in, in um, or a missing skill set in all of the county. We couldn't find it anywhere else. And so um, Dan spearheaded the program, and now I'm part of the curriculum development and teaching team. And we, every 12 weeks, take a new batch of entrepreneurs and small business owners, and our goal is to empower them to transform their business by thinking about how they communicate and with whom they communicate with and reach through digital marketing and other tools 
so that they can take these small businesses and turn them into medium-sized businesses, right? So this is how jobs get created. They can and, grow and also a lot of them yeah. are not-for-profits, right? So how does civil society get their message out so that they can begin to expand their program and, and make a difference, right? You know how societies work with three things. We've got government, the private sector, and, um, and civil society. So we have um, tro- some Tropical Audubon Society folks in our, in our course now. We've had quite a few... Um, Knight Foundation is is also part of learning how to do this. So the the idea is how do you take these small, and, and Knight's kind of big, but how do you take organizations and, and empower them to, to do more and to grow? We, we've not done a great job attracting big companies to, to the county, so why not just have our own homegrown jobs? And you've read, oh, you know, as much as I do, every week we're reading about what a great startup scene we have here in Miami, yeah, but sure, we don't yeah. have a great scale-up scene. And we need to. And the county has no structured programs um, designed to empower and accelerate our small businesses into medium-sized businesses, which, by the way, are higher-wage jobs. And we need them. So that's something I would want to bring to the commission, and I'm uniquely qualified to to bring that. There's no one – there aren't others on the commission that have done this. Um, And so that's a unique experience that I would bring and I would advocate for figuring out how we're getting homegrown jobs here um, out of the small businesses that already exist. And, and, and you're right. There isn't anybody on the commission that's advocating for that right now. Um, but let's turn our attention to a current issue that's happening in your district, which is the debate over a, a, a proposal to create a Formula One race in downtown Miami. Now, one of the things that happened the last time there was a an auto race in downtown Miami was that it was the Formula E race. Yes, yes. And they used a piece of county property that is... Parcel B, it's still a parking lot. I was just going to say, it's, it's sometimes known as Dan Paul Park, which is what residents want it to turn into. But it's they call it Parcel B, and it, like you said, is still a parking lot. Yeah. So what's your position on bringing the Formula One race into downtown and... Dan Paul Park. So it, from what I can tell with the city of Miami commission, which is they're looking very likely to pass this, you know, to bring this here, I can tell you the formula E thing was a disaster. If you lived in the neighborhood, um, first of all, there was no consideration for how pedestrians would cross the street. You literally had to sometimes you just couldn't cross the street buses. They took up so much of the street that for a bus to let a person off next to a barricade, they had to take up both of the other lanes of Biscayne Boulevard. So anyone on public transit got out in the middle of the street and all traffic flow was completely stopped. So I think we can learn from that. We better learn from that because that was absolutely a mess. It was um, a mess. It was a total mess. And and it was a mess for at least a month and a month afterwards by the time they, they broke the whole thing down. So, so what the city's got to do is take the neighborhood into consideration as they, they begin to, to look at this. They've got to say, how are we going to get pedestrians across the street? How are we going to get buses down Biscayne Boulevard during the construction of this whole mess? Because, right, during the race, of course, no, you know, it's going to be cars going however fast those cars go, 100 miles an hour. Um, so we've got to do that, and we've got to figure out how do we restore whatever they demolish, Right, because oh, it's sure, not just yeah. going to be Parcel B that's going to be demolished. The grandstands and everything else in Bayfront Park and, and that. The other thing the city needs to balance, and the, the Formula One people better figure out, is every lot on Biscayne Boulevard that now is a small business on 
are ready to be demolished and the city's already approved plans for these giant new buildings. So you know when we do giant new buildings in downtown, they always let them take up the street. They never put pedestrian um, scaffolding for us to walk down the street. And so the question becomes, how does the city balance those plans? The other thing is this is a 10-year plan. We've got the new bridge, right, which at some point in time in those 10 years will begin will be under construction. So there's literally a chance that if they don't plan properly for this, that you will not be able to move a single human being, whether on a bus, a trolley, on foot, or on a car with all that construction during the Formula One setup and takedown. So, um, you know, that's our message. I'm on the board of the Downtown Neighbors Alliance. That's our message to city commissioners is um, think, right? This This could be a real economic benefit for the county done properly, and it can be an absolute disaster if done improperly. And, and so um, they need to think and, and they need to plan. And I'm not convinced 10 years is the right solution. Um, down, you know, Miami will be wildly transformed five years from now. It transforms itself every five years. So hopefully they'll do a little, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved in that decision. Um, I can only, you know, give my little two cents, but, yeah, but they you, need to think. But you know what? You bring up a point that I feel like some legislators and some lawmakers understand and some don't, which is that even though you may not be on a particular board or council, you your opinion counts. Yeah. And in fact, it counts a lot more when you're elected to a higher body and you can say, hey, you know, my constituents, which may be, you know, like the city of Miami has five commissioners and they all kind of act like mini mayors of yeah, their little yeah, fiefdoms. That's they the do. that is the truth. Yeah. I've never and seen the city of Miami commission uh, interoperate in a fashion that's unified. It's just set up that way. I hope it's it's getting better that way. I mean, I was really proud of the bond issue, which was a collab. You know, that's very right. Much a collaborative, rare collaborative collab- issue. But, it, but you know, it worked and it proves we ca- we can collaborate across our neighborhoods. It, it we can. have to collaborate across our neighborhoods. But but. You know, we also have to collaborate across our governments, and I think that's something that is sorely lacking. I mean, you know, we actually have state legislators like the former state legislator in Coconut Grove, uh, Miguel Diaz de la Portilla, who was lobbying other municipalities while he held his state, uh, you know, yeah, uh, state lawmakers you know, it's, uh, position. It's and, interesting. And, and when you have a, yeah. that t- kind of dynamic, instead of, hey, I'm a neighbor, I live here. You know, it, it really changes the way politics happens in the state. Well, we certainly have a lot of cross-pollination of brothers and sisters as lobbyists. Um, and family and members. family members. And certainly, the eth- I think the ethics rules, if I'm correct, prohibit children and parents, but they certainly don't prohibit brothers and sisters. So we have a lot of... Or, or husbands my, and wives. Hus- so so things can become very uh, commingled. Um People should should know that uh, my parents live several hours away, and my brothers and sisters live in Oregon and New Mexico. So um, it's very hard for them to become enriched, and it's very inconvenient for them to become lobbyists because one of them is a small business owner and the other is a college professor. They have no time for that nonsense. So um, that's what I bring to the commission, right? I'm, I'm a smart thinking, experienced person. I'm an engineer. I've worked for large companies. I empower small companies now. I've served in the Peace Corps, so I bring a lens of poverty alleviation um, to all of my decisions. And um, I can tell you, enriching myself will never be part of the decision process. You may agree with everything I decide. You may disagree every now and then, but you can be assured that... um, I will never be making those decisions based on special interests and the interest of my family uh, as I do them. So things are a, a bit more 
I don't know, discombobulated or interconnected than they should be in our county and city government. So Eileen, tell our audience in just a minute why they absolutely 100% need to vote for you on May 22nd in the special election for Miami-Dade Commission District 5. So for what I tell people is I will be a new voice on the commission. I bring a different set of eyes. I have worked in all parts of the community throughout the county. So yes, I'm a District 5 resident, but I also have started and intend to continue to solve problems throughout the county. I am. Um, I can assure you, as I just mentioned, that I intend to do that with integrity and with value. And my goal is to bring a little bit of balance into decision-making around the county. We have an economy that works for some of us, but not for all of us. And so we need to begin some balance into that so that all, everybody that lives in the county begins to benefit from the development that, um, that tends to just benefit a few of us. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. It's really been a pleasure having you on. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and, and of course, your interest in just spreading the word about local elections. Sometimes people aren't even aware um, of what a difference their commissioner can make for them. And Eileen, tell our audience one more time, where can our people take this conversation onto the Internet after the program so um my website is eileenhiggins.com you can connect with me on facebook there also on twitter twitter is um my hand you can find me at eileen higgins but at eyes on my world is the handle also on the website you will be able to find you'll be able to download your um early voting locations early voting starts on the 12th goes through the 20th so you there's 10 days of that the county's doing a great job at making sure that people have access to early voting locations in the neighborhoods, Government Center, City Hall, Miami Beach, Shenandoah Library, and then the Hispanic Branch Library over in Little Havana. So very convenient to vote Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then, of course, if you run out of time, then May 22nd on at your polling location. All righty. So you can find out more about where to vote which is going on right now. Early voting is happening right now in the Miami-Dade County District 5 Commission race. And check out EileenHiggins.com. That's www.EileenHiggins.com to find your polling place. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Ladra, Elaine Del Valle. Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you for having me, Grant. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you doing, Elaine? I'm good. I'm good. I can't wait till tomorrow. Right. So it's going to be a very exciting election tomorrow. What is your prediction 
as to the result. First of all, will we see a runoff? And if so, who's going to be in that runoff? There are four candidates. You took my thunder. You took my thunder. I was going to say, I predict a runoff because, you know, I, I don't want to have to go further than that. But, yes, I, I think that definitely there's going to be a runoff. Although, I got to say, I am really, really, really impressed with Eileen Higgins and how she has been able to motivate voters. I mean, I don't know if that's going to translate to numbers, what I've seen out there in the streets, what I've seen on social media. I mean, I, I know a Republican that voted for her yesterday. So, you know, I've seen a lot. She, she's really gone out there. She's knocked on a lot of doors. Uh, one person told me that, you know, the only person who knocked on his door was her. Um, you know, so I, I think that her grassroots campaign, uh, you know, definitely is going to make a mark and it's going to shock a lot of people. I, I don't know that she's gotten you know that much support that she'll get more than 50 percent but i do think that she's going to force a runoff with uh and i think it's going to okay. be with Raila Barreto. oh interesting okay that's, so that's, so your prediction my, is we will see a runoff yeah. and you think that it's zoraida barreo why, why, why mrs barreto you know i i think that all things being equal between the the two big republicans the two dynasty names um on the ballot um barreo has not lost this district in what is it 20 years 19 years right so yeah, it's been a long there's you know, a lot of name recognition there yeah you know i mean there's name recognition for diaz de la partida also but this is barrero's district this has been barrero's district for 20 years so it, it's not just name recognition it's the barrero machinery it's the barrero community you know that that's going to go out you know the same people that that went out and voted for her husband i think are, are going to go out and, and vote for zoraida barrero um and then she's also going to gain i think some women voters who might not have voted for commissioner bruno um and then you know i know that she's probably going to get some elderly voters um that may or may not have of course she might lose some too so you know that that's going to be a wash but i think that alex diaz de la portilla even though his name is well known there um he also has a lot of negativity attached to that name so the, you know it's well known for a lot of the wrong reasons whereas Zoraida Barreto, you know the, the, the most negative thing you can say about her is that she's Bruno's wife um, well, I which, mean you know, you know this race has been unusual from the start and I think the most unusual thing that I've ever seen in almost any political race I, and I got to tell you everything's unusual about Miami politics was the Univision debate where Eileen Higgins was the only one that showed up Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> what can yeah. you say about that? That's amazing. I've never heard of a political debate on a a major station and having only one candidate show show up. It's it's yeah, un, unheard of. La gringa, right? You know, and, and yeah. the, the, you know, it's, well, I mean, I, I think that it's very common. You see, I mean, maybe it's not common because nobody showed up. Um, you know, I I, I certainly did not expect, um, you know. Zoraida to show up because if she's leading the polls, which is what everybody says, is she's leading the polls, even by a little bit, she's got nothing to gain by that. Um, so you know, all three of, of the times, other candidates thought that they were leading in the polls and decided to skip the no, debate? No, no, no. I, 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 I think that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what, you know, I know that they skipped another debate on Brickell, and I think that that was a League of Women Voters debate. And I think that Republicans just in general have been skipping those debates lately because they think that that's at least uh, Nelson Diaz from the Republican Party of Miami-Dade told me that it was 
was a democratic organization, a liberal democratic organization. Um, so that, you know, he, he did tell, for example, um, Andrew Vargas in, in the recent state house race to boycott that uh, debate. I don't know if the same, you know, thought was, was given by, by these uh, people who are running a nonpartisan race, but it's kind of become a partisan race, too. That That's another thing I found very interesting. Um, this is the most partisan, nonpartisan race I've ever seen, um, in the sense that the Democrats have really pulled out a lot of punches for um, Eileen Higgins, who's a Dem- the only Democrat on the ballot and, and an activist and a progressive. Um, and we've seen even people, you know, to the point of Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum, who's got his own gubernatorial campaign to run, you know, take time yesterday to talk to her, to encourage her and, and to, you know, tweet his followers to to vote for her and, and to encourage their friends to do so, too. And she's so, picked up uh, endorsements from Xavier Suarez, from Danielle Levine-Cava, uh, from Ken, Ken Russell, Russell, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely been uh, a lot of action for a very short race. A lot of action for a very short race. A lot of action for for uh, for someone who's so new at this. I mean, I've never seen a new candidate, um, you know, and and you know, somebody who has not had experience, at least that I know of, in, in these type of things before, do so well. You know, I mean, she's she's obviously got. I, I don't know who's advising her. Do you know who's advising her? She's got a lot of people advising her. <laughs> <laughs> She's obviously got somebody though who, who you know who knows who's done this before. And like she said, I, I love what she says. It's not her first time to the rodeo. It's her first time running, but not her first time to the rodeo. You know, I just think that she's really kind of you know made this race very interesting. I think that you know what I'm hoping also is that people will look at this race and challenge some of the other commissioners, the county commissioners that are on you know that that are up on the ballot in. in this year in August or November, depending on how many challenges they get. Um, and, I mean, we have three, the last time I checked, at least three, uh, Sally Heyman, Rebecca Sosa, and I think Jose Pepadillas, who are not being challenged at all. Um, and I think that, you know, this, if Eileen Higgins does well, I think it will show a lot of people that, you know, this is a different kind of year. Voters are kind of upset with the status quo. It's not just a blue wave. It's not just an anti-Trump uh, thing, I think, sentiment. I think it's an anti-incumbent sentiment. I think it's an anti-establishment sentiment. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's, that could carry over into other races if, if people decide to jump in. Well, doesn't this show the impact of big money on one party? Eventually, it causes a terrible backlash that leads voters to turn them out, even if they still have all the money to spend in the race? I mean, doesn't it show that at some point politicians have to deliver for the voters? Well, I mean, I think that's always been true, but I, but I also think that the the you know that if you without money you can't get your message out to voters. I mean, there have been sure. some cases where you know you have elections. Ken Russell's a great example, um, you know, where with very little money, and and so is Javier Fernandez in, in the recent state house race, where I think he was uh, outspent three to one by Andrew Vargas, where you know the money didn't matter, but they did need some. It wasn't like they didn't need any at all. Um, so, I mean, it, this race has actually been, you know, as far as money is concerned, I, I don't think that it's had the kind of financial interest that I would expect of a special shotgun wedding commission race. I mean, this commission race, if you really think about it, could change the, the power structure of the commission. If I mean That's Higgins right. is elected, you know, it changes kind of, I mean, yeah, I know that there was a 10-1 vote the other day and Daniela Levine-Cava was the only no vote on the make them all, but you know, maybe if it was a, a two people up there, 
then maybe Xavier Suarez and maybe some other people who had concerns, you know, might have been pulled over to the other side. So it does change the power structure a little bit. And I'm surprised that there's not more money involved in in these campaigns. Well, let's talk about some of the other races. What are some of the other races that have attracted your attention in South Florida and Miami-Dade County? Because there's a lot going on. It's a big election year. Right. Well, I, I'm very interested in looking to see, like I said earlier, you know, the, the, if anybody challenges the other county commissioners and also, you know, state house members, um, particularly Jose Oliva. I, I haven't, you know, I, I think that he does have one challenger, um, Sevi Miyar, who I believe is a school teacher. I know she ran once, but I is don't she know. Is she a Democrat she has, or a Republican? She, she is a Democrat. Okay. Um, and, and I don't know if she has the support and the machinery. I hope she has the Democratic Party machinery behind her, um, because I think that he's vulnerable, you know, particularly on the whole issue with guns. And he was the one who pushed that, um, you know, the Marshall program or the armed teachers program into the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas bill. And I think that he's vulnerable. And because he's going to be the incoming speaker, it's the biggest message that we could send um, to to re- not just Republicans, but to all legislators that you have to listen to the people. You can't you know, hear hour after hour after hour of testimony from the constituents that elected you and then do the exact opposite of what they've asked you to do. Um, so, so, I mean, I'm hoping so that somebody me will, pose, you know, that, that we are, will do good against him. Let, let me pose this question to you. Because this is, I think, one of the big questions nationally, but it's certainly a big question locally. Is the the machinery and the money more important, or is the wave more important? Which do you think is going to win out? Because obviously, you know, there are going to be candidates that are spending multiple of what the other candidates spend, <clears throat> Jose Oliva being one of them. No matter who his opponent is, even if they're a very well-funded <clears throat> Democrat, He's going to probably outspend them three to one, four to one, five to one, ten to one even. Do you think that the wave is going to be greater than the money this year or the money is going to be able to hold off the wave? And I'm not just talking about Oliva's race, but I'm talking about in general because the the same situation is set up all over the place right now. A lot of very well-funded incumbents. Right, but the incumbents are always going to be well-funded, aren't they? I mean, that, that's the whole nature of being an incumbent. And, and and I think the answer, you're not going to like the answer because it's not an easy answer, but it, it's got to be a combination of two. I, I think the wave can win. I think the wave can beat the money if the messaging is, is there. If you're able to get your point across, if if people are, if, if the candidates are able to get, I mean, you, you don't have to have a lot of money if you can get a lot of earned media. You know, sure. you don't have to have a lot of money if you can get, you know, if, if you have a, a large number of volunteers, you know, canvassing for you. But you, you need to get the message out there. You need to be able to do the work. If you do the work, I think the blue wave will carry you through without the money. Well, I mean, is is this a sign that the Democrats have their act together a little bit more? I think, like, for example, with Eileen Higgins, uh, locally, I'm saying, not nationally, but locally. I definitely think that this is fine. Not just Eileen Higgins. I think that we're, we're looking at a trend here. I mean, look at Aneta Dale finally got elected, um, you know, and then we had Javier Fernandez win in the 114 against a much more heavily financed uh candidate in the Republican Party. And now we have Eileen Higgins, who's making these Republican dynasties that should have been a, 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 a no sweat, you know, what do you call it? A kill shot, Duncan, you know, a slam dunk. Complete, a slam dunk. There you go. Thank you. A slam dunk election for one of them. Now we have Eileen Higgins making them sweat, you know, um, and, and maybe take, you know, maybe becoming our next commissioner in, in a predominantly Hispanic 
you know, district, Hispanic voting district. So where the, where the Hispanic voters are more high-performing voters and more motivated, especially on special election or non-presidential election years. So I, I think it's a trend, and I think that, it, yes, it, it does show. That's why I'm looking at the state house races. I want to see, you know, I understand that um, Manny well, Diaz Jr. is running for the state Senate seat that's being vacated by um, that. That uh, is correct. And uh, that's all the time we have tonight. But, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Uh, tell our audience where they can take the conversation onto the Internet after the program. Well, we'll be talk- well, I'll be writing about these state house races in my blog, Political Cortadito, which is on politicalcortadito.com. You can also find me on, t- at Twitter, on Twitter at News Chica. And that's all the time we have for tonight's show. I'd like to thank all of our guests. We'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.